don't do a series more than four or five weeks, but we're doing an eight-week series, and it's called The Will of Life. And in this series, we're learning uh, how to bring balance in, into your life. And, and uh, one of the biggest problems we have is that our lives are unbalanced. And uh, actually, this, this graph is from uh, the late Zig Ziglar, who was a motivational uh, teacher, an incredible man of God, wrote a number of books, helped so many people. But he, he found that life is divided into seven major categories. All of us have these seven major categories. First of all is our, our spiritual life and what we do with, uh, with uh, not, not religion, but what we do with Jesus Christ, our, our family life, and our relationships with our, intimate, with, our, with our spouses, our children, our immediate family members, our financial life. And we, we talked about that last week. And uh, no matter what way you slice and dice it, finances play a part in our lives. And how well you do in the financial sector really will, is going to determine a lot about your life, a lot of the stress factors. And uh, then, of course, there's our, our mental life, how we think. There's our physical life, our body, and how we take care of that. Uh, there's our social life, who we choose to hang around with and who we fellowship with. And then our, our career. And, and what Zig Ziglar found was is that most people uh, are successful in several of these areas, but others are lacking. So maybe they do really good with family and they do really good with their careers, um, but their mental life is, is kind of a mess. Uh, their spiritual life is a mess. And what he found is if you're good in a couple of these areas, the ones you're not good in will drag you down. And so we're just looking, and, and hopefully every week I'm giving you just uh, some practical things that you can leave here today and go home to do. So if you've missed the first couple, you can go to our website and listen to those. I think that will, they will be very beneficial for you. This morning I want to focus on the family. And uh, here's what I've learned. If our, if our family life is not healthy. If our relationships with our significant other ones, if our, our, our relationship with our husband or wife or children or your mother or father, brothers and sisters, if your family relationships are not healthy, uh, life can become very unpleasant. We were made to have healthy relationships and whenever we have broken relationships in our life, whenever there's strife in our family life and our relationships, it, you know, it doesn't matter how well your career is going. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. If you can't get along with the people that you're supposed to love, that God has placed in your life, uh, that just makes life very unpleasant. And uh, so basically I, I believe it's impossible to become truly successful if our families are falling apart or if they're dysfunctional. Dysfunction means that they're still working, they're just not working right. And many of you were raised in dysfunctional homes um, where you're, you're, you know, everyone stayed together and everyone loved each other, they just didn't treat each other very well. Or, you know, there was always conflict and strife and, and things like that. So let me, let me tell you, I, I believe, you know, uh, God, one of the things that God told me when we started this church many years ago, we named it Family Life because God had instructed me that I want you to help families. I want you to help families. And we're witnessing the rapid disintegration of our families in America. It, it gets worse every year. Let me, not to discourage you, but let me, let me just give you a snapshot of where our families are at. Roughly 
50% of our society, so 50% of you in here today at least, you were raised in homes that were ravaged by divorce. Now, the good news is that divorce rates have actually gone down. Divorce rates today are only 38%. But that's not because less people are getting divorced. It's because people just live together today. And, I mean, it's so much easier just to break it off and live together and, you know, you don't have to go to the court and all that kind of stuff. Do you, would you know, people are surprised at this, but people who live together and then end up getting married, they think they're doing themselves a service, but their chance of their marriage working is less than someone who just gets married. And if you get divorced and remarried, your remarriage, your second marriage, your third marriage, is, has a lesser degree, a lesser chance of be, being successful than, than a, a first marriage. And the reason is, is because every time we leave one relationship and go to another one, we're taking baggage with us and the baggage just starts to accumulate. So what I always tell people is if you're married, the best thing you can ever do is just work on your marriage, just to fix your marriage. And you say, well, my mate has problems. I, I agree they do, but so do you, okay? So we just have to, we have to figure out how to, how to work these things out. We're going we're gonna to talk about that a little bit today. But there's, there's little commitment to the institution of marriage. Uh, family statistics, on average, nearly 20 people every minute in America are abused. So by the time we finish this service today, since I've been talking, 100 people in America have, have been physically or sexually abused. Uh, th this, this amounts, in, in a one year's time, it means that 10 million men and women are abused in some type of, of way by an intimate partner. One in five girls, so 20% of all adult females, uh, reports show, recall an incident in their childhood of sexual assault, a sexual abuse incident, and 5 to 10% of men. And so, uh, again, that shows the, the breakdown of the family. There's, some, there's dysfunction in family. And near, nearly half of all babies born in the U.S. are born today are born to unwed mothers. Now, there's, there's roughly uh, four, th 4 million babies a year born in the United States. So half of those, 50%, 2 million of those were born to unwed mothers. Of course, uh, there would be a lot more babies born today if we weren't killing babies in clinics. I, I, I want to say something. I, I try to, to stay away from so much, but, 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 I, but I just can't. This, this recent stuff in, in, in New York and different states uh, that, that, are, that are slaughtering babies up into labor and delivery, I'm just telling you, family life, we're totally against that. The Bible, God is totally against that. God is about life. He's about life. And uh, now, having said that, I, I know because I've talked, we have, we have a number of ladies in our church who at some time previous in their life, before they knew Jesus, when they were young, they had, a, they had, had abortions. And, and listen, uh, we are not throwing any blame. Everyone has skeletons in their closet. So uh, we, we love you. We don't, we don't condemn you. And I, we, I prayed for a number of ladies who just need God to heal that hurt in their heart because they have so much regret. But uh, I, I just, I can't stand here and, and watch the leaders of our country say ridiculous things. And, uh, you know, they, they say that they love people and they're for people, but we're killing babies. And I, I can't, you know, so if that bothers you, I apologize, but I, I can do nothing less. Uh, it's, it's, if we don't stand up for what we believe, why do we even, why do we even assemble? Um, but uh, also, among the, 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 the millions of babies that are born in unwed mothers, um, 
racial and ethnic uh, makeup of this is skewed. For example, only 29, now this is growing, 29% of of white babies are born uh, to unwed mothers, 53% of Latinos, many of them are living together, but 79% of African-American babies are born to unwed mothers. And let let me tell you why this is a big deal. Uh, Again, I'm I'm embarrassed that our, 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 our leaders, our politicians, they don't have the courage to just to say the truth. And the truth is we could save a lot of pain in our world and a lot of people could be out of poverty if we could just simply do things God's way, okay, with, 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 with two parents. So let me tell you some stats. This is, these are st- statistics of children that are born without a father in the home, children who are raised without a father in the home. 71% of all high school dropouts don't have a father in the home. We're raised without a father, without a father figure. 71% of all teenage pregnancies are to, are to girls who were raised without a father figure in their life, in their home. 85% of all children with behavior disorders have no father, no father figure in the home. And 90% of all homeless and runaway children come from a broken family without a father figure in their life. 63% of all youth suicides are from kids who were raised without a father figure, without a father in the home. And 85% of all youth in prison today were raised without a father figure. So you, you, you can see the statistics that when we, if, if we're able to do things God's way, and no, matter, no matter where you're at, and if it, it, it's better if we have um, a mother and a father in a home. Statistically speaking, it's, that doesn't mean that if you're a single parent, you can't raise good kids. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it's harder. It's much harder. Of marriages that last a lifetime, so of people who have never divorced, many of them are not healthy marriages. They just chose to stay together out of duty. 75% of all peop- adults today who were raised with a mother and a father who did not divorce, 75% of them today claim that they do not want the type of marriage that their parents had. So you, you can see we, ha- we have some work to do, and that's okay because the Bible tells us exactly how to do it. So the American family is in rough shape. I believe the breakdown, again, of the family is the number one cause of the problems in our country. And the breakdown of the family is, is the number one cause of poverty in America. So if you, if you say that you really want to get people out of poverty, then we have to, we have to fix the family. I was, a number of years ago, I was, I was watching a special, and I, I apologize, but I can't remember the, the, the guy's name, but there, there was a cabinet member of President Bill Clinton, and he was, he was on a, a show being interviewed, and he said, you know, when, when President Clinton was in office, we did this big research project, high up research, and we, we wanted to see how to, how to help people get out of poverty, and we found, now this is amazing, we found that if people did three things, they had an 86% chance of never being in poverty. Three things, okay? Number one, uh, don't get pregnant in high school. That was number one thing. Don't, don't get a female pregnant if you're a guy, you know, for the ladies, don't get pregnant. Number two, finish high school. And number three, wait until you're 22 years old to get married. That was the three things. That doesn't sound hard, does it? But, but again, ju- just showing you this, when there's a breakdown of the family, it, it really, it really uh, in- 
encumbers our lives and, and makes, makes things, again, if you've gone through a divorce, any of that type of stuff, there is no condemnation. We want, we want to help you. But I, I'm just saying to all the young people here, when you do things God's way, and you wait and you pray and you find the right mate and you do things the right way, what that's saying is you're giving yourselves a great advantage to be successful in life. Um, what, what I'm going to do this morning, many years ago now when I was working on my master's degree, I took a class on the family. And it was probably the best, the best uh, school class I've, I've ever taken, the best course I've ever taken. And what these authors did they say, you know, many today, many books today on relationships, on family, marriage, parent-child relationships, what they do is they, they take, they use a lot of fad methods, and they use a lot of popular data and research of things, but they're like, we're, we're Christians, and so what they did is they went through the whole Bible, and they, they, they discovered what they call are the four pillars of the family. Now, what's different is these four things we're going to talk about today we're going to talk about how to bring healing to your family and uh, how to have a thriving family. And, but what they found is if you, if you put these four things in your family, they're, they're mentioned in the Bible hundreds of times each, and they're woven all the way from Genesis to Revelation. So they're, they're, they're dependable is, is what, what they were trying to say. So I'm going to take just a few minutes this morning, and I'm going to talk about four things. If you have these four things in any relationship, with your husband, with your wife, with your children, with your co-workers, uh, your, your chance of having a healthy relationship are, are 100%. The first, the first principle, the first pillar is the pillar of covenant. The pillar of covenant. Covenant is a very important word in the Bible. And, and probably, if you hear this morning, probably the only time you've heard the word covenant used outside of the Bible is in terms of the marriage covenant. Um, you know, we, we consider marriage it, to be a covenant. But really, if, if outside of the church and outside of the Bible, today in our culture, the word commitment has replaced the word covenant. Now, the only problem is that our view of commitment and the original meaning of the word covenant in the Bible are, are light years apart. There's a big difference when God is talking about having a covenant relationship with us and us having covenant relationships with others, that's a whole different ball game than just saying that, oh yeah, I'm committed. There's a, a totally different life, a lifestyle and totally different commitment level. So let's look at the word covenant. Uh, here, here, if you look up in the dictionary, here's how they define the word covenant. It's an unconditional commitment between two parties. Unconditional means that it can't be broken. Uh, between people based on love, it's an unending or undying commitment a commitment that cannot be dissolved by human affairs. So in other words, it's a, it's a lifelong, forever type of a commitment. And so as we, as we progress through life and begin to start our families, you know, we begin to get, get married, have kids, have grandkids, and have nieces and nephews, and, and all these, as our families grow, the goal, the biblical goal is that we live in covenant together. That we, that we, all of us, we display unconditional love, unconditional commitment in all of our family relationships. And uh, so basically, the word covenant, it leaves, it leaves no room uh, for escape. It means that if you have a problem in the family, you have to work on it. You have to work on it because you're, you're, you're committed in a covenant relationship 
uh, with, with God and, and with your, uh, you know, your intimate relationships. So basically, it forces you to work on your relationships because, because you're in it for life. And I, I just want to think about this. If, you know, we get married when we're young, and many times we do things when we're young, and it's really almost impossible for us to think about 30 years down the road. That's why I encourage people, you know, when you're going to get married, is, is the way this person treating you, is the way they treat other people, the way that you want to be treated in 10, 15 years when you have children? I mean, we, we, we've got to begin to think about these things. And are they able to understand the term, the term uh, covenant? So the word covenant runs all throughout the Bible. And it's, it's actually used 275 times. The concept works like this, that God created humanity. He created uh, Adam and Eve, man and woman, to have a covenant relationship with him. And the Bible says that God is 100% totally, unconditionally committed uh, to us, whether we accept his covenant or not. Romans 5, 8, it says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us, or, or, or you could say that God demonstrates the covenant he made with us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the unconditional covenant love of God says that uh, you rebelled against me, you had, didn't want to have anything to do with me, but even while you were in rebellion against me, even while you were lost in your sins, that I, I made a way for us to, to be reconciled. Isn't that good news? And so, think about this. They're, they're in the, the Bible talks about two types of covenant. The first one is a unilateral covenant, and the second one, uh, the second one is a bilateral covenant. So, unilateral means this, that it's a one-way, it's a one-way covenant. So, see, again, sometimes we, we fall into that in our, in our lives, that we're committed to somebody, but they're not committed to us. We're unconditionally committed, but, but they aren't. That's a unilateral uh, covenant. And, and the thought goes like this, that God offered a unilateral, a one-way covenant to us because we had nothing to offer. And think about this, that God loved you so much that he, he gave you a way to be redeemed. He gave you a way to be brought into covenant with him. And, and you did nothing to deserve that, and you did nothing to make the covenant work. That's a one-way covenant. When we accept, when we accept God, when we accept his son Jesus, when, when we join in relationship with him, it moves from a unilateral or one-way covenant to a bilateral covenant. It's between us and God. Both people, both people are committed to unconditionally lo loving this. And I want to tell you a story. Uh, if, you've, if you've never read the, the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, it's only, it's only four chapters, I believe. And I want you to go home today and read that. The story of Ruth is really, it, it, it's a picture of God's covenant love to us. So let me, instead of reading all four chapters this morning and closing down, let me just tell you the story. Uh, there was a famine in Israel. And so this young family, they decide to move from Israel to the land of Moab. And the husband's name was Elimelech. His wife was Naomi, and they had two sons, Malon and Kilion. And so they moved to Moab just for survival purposes. And they're there for a number of years. They're there for about 10 years. During the course of time, their two sons, Malon and Kilion, they marry Moabite women because they're, they're living in Moab and, and there's no Israelite women there. And uh, so they start, they, they extend the family relationship. Both their sons are married. 
And then in a, a, a tragic set of events, Naomi, her husband Elimelech dies, and then both of her sons, Malon and Kilion, die. And so Naomi is there with her two daughter-in-laws, a woman named Orpah and a woman named Ruth. And, uh, you know, in all her distress and sadness, uh, Naomi comes, she begins to hear that God is again blessing Israel, that God is restoring the fortunes of Israel, and she's like, it's time to go home, it's time to leave Moab and go back uh, to the place where I'm supposed to be. And so Naomi and her two daughter-in-law set out, and, and Naomi is thinking, you know, back in those days, if you were married to a, to a son in a family, and if, if that son died, you were to be promised to one of the other sons to carry on the name of the son who died. And uh, Naomi started thinking, and she told her two daughter, daughter-in-law, she said, listen, she said, uh, listen, I'm old, and even if I had kids today, they're not, are you going to wait for them? She told them, go back to your families, go back to your homes, and, and may God bless you, and, and may you find love in the arms of another. But anyway, don't go with me to Israel. I have nothing to offer. Go back to your families. And after some, uh, after some uh, you know, talks and dialogue, Orpah goes back. But here in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16 through 18, Ruth, she replies to Naomi. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And so here, Ruth, Ruth I mean, this is a picture. It's the, it displays the heart of God when when she made the statement, listen, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Whoever you serve, I'm going to serve. Where you die, I will die, and I will be buried. Nothing will separate the two of us. And she clearly defines the essence of covenant love. Covenant love is an unwavering, unconditional, underlying, undying commitment to love someone and stick by them regardless of whether it's beneficial for you on an individual basis. I mean, we need to understand that, that covenant, covenant, we're not in covenant as long as it's good for me. We're in covenant even if something is not necessarily beneficial, if I'm not necessarily getting something out of the relationship. A covenant love, it's, un, it's unending. And, you know, you think about this, there's many times when we allow ourselves to get in positions and conditions where we don't have much to give God and he's not worried about that. He's saying, I'm, I'm still committed to you. I'm still committed to helping you. I'm committed to, to, to being in your life and helping you get through this. So this is the heart of God toward us. Everyone this morning, that God is unconditionally committed to you. So I, I just want you to think about this. It really doesn't matter what you've done. It really doesn't matter what you think about yourself. It doesn't matter what people say about you. God has instituted and he has, he has thrown out a, a one-way covenant love to you that he desperately wants you to take him up on because he wants to be in relationship with you. And, and, and God's love, it, it's always uh, never-ending, and he's, he's going to uh, 
He's going to be there for you even when no one else is and even when you think you don't deserve for him to be there. And, you know, I, I think that this is the essence of Christianity, that God broke into creation and, and he, he redeemed us and, and, and gave us, I mean, the, in the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the word testament means covenant. So it's the old covenant and through Jesus is the new covenant. When the old covenant wasn't beneficial for us anymore, God broke into time and he made a new covenant with us where we could be redeemed and brought into relationship with him. And, and I think sometimes in church we've got it wrong. Uh, we've got it wrong, and, and, and sometimes the world out there, I think if they understood what Christianity is really based on, it's based on the heart of God for people. It's based on the love of God for people. It's based on an unconditional, unending commitment of God to the human race. If they understood that, and I think if the church represented that covenant to people, I think our churches would be fuller. See, all the things that people do to criticize churches, it's, it's impossible to criticize someone who loves you unconditionally. I mean, you can do it, it just it gets old quick. I mean, you, you, you feel bad, and so it's the unconditional love of God. Now, when we, when we understand covenant love and bring this into our families, it, it does two things. So if you're able to bring covenant into your family this morning, it does two things. First of all, it brings strength into your relationships. And it brings freedom into your relationships. See, the reason why our relationships are not strong is because they're based on conditions. If you do X, Y, and Z, then I'll do this. <clears throat> I want you to understand what I'm saying this morning. I'm not saying that it's okay for someone to mistreat somebody. I'm not saying that it's okay for somebody to physically or sexually or anything abuse, abuse somebody. That, that's not what I'm saying. In the majority of our relationships, the problem is that we express love if the conditions are right. We express love if they do what we expect them to do. And, and covenant just says, we're in this thing together, we're going to work this thing out together, and even on your worst day, I still love you and I'm still going to treat you the way that, that Christ uh, wants us to. But it brings strength. I mean, strength in the, in the form that even if I have a bad day, you know, my wife isn't going to leave me. Even if I mess up. This is the funniest thing whenever, uh, it, actually it's not funny, but as I, as I, a number of times I've, I've, I've done marriage counseling in the last 20, 25 years, I, you know, I always tell the, marri the married couples this, that, you know, they come and they're having some problems, so they express what the other person is doing that hurts them. And this is what I always tell them. Even if your husband makes a 180-degree turn and starts doing better, he's still going to have days when he, he's not perfect. And you have to, for, I mean, the only way it can work is if you forgive him. You know, he, yeah, he needs to make some changes, and we're going to work on that, and I'm going to hold him accountable. But, you know, all of us, would you just say this with me for a minute? Say, I am imperfect. We're, we're imperfect, so even if somebody changes and is growing, they're still not going to be perfect. And so covenant says, I forgive you even when you're not perfect, although we want them, I mean, obviously we want them to, to do better and grow. So the first thing that would change our relationships, if you need to turn your family around, is there needs to be covenant. People in your family and your relationships need to know that you're unconditionally committed to love them, to support them, to care for them, and that no matter what they do, 
you're, st- you're going to still love them and care for them and, uh, and be there for them. The second one, though, is very, very important, and that's the idea of grace. The idea of grace that for a family relationship to work, we have to extend grace to each other. Now, all these topics I'm talking about, they're not, they're not hard. They're very simple to understand, although they may be difficult to do. And so gracious, this is the definition of grace. It's undeserved kindness and favor. When we are giving something that we did not expect, earn, or deserve. How many of you have ever had grace extended to you? Grace is the most incredible thing when you need it. But how many of you know that we all like to receive grace, but sometimes we're not so good at extending grace? Just say shame on me. Yeah, shame on you. Isn't that funny? When we mess up, we always want to be forgiven. We always want to be brought back. But sometimes we, we are the least... Uh, so sometimes we're just not very good at extending grace to others. So, again, the Bible says what, what, what you sow, you reap. So if you want grace extended to you, it would be very helpful if you extend grace to others. And it, it is an amazing thing when you extend grace. Relationships don't get broken. You don't go without talking to people for months and months at a time. There, there's an old story that I, I read that I think is very funny. Back in the 1900s, uh, Charles, Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker were two of the pre- preeminent speakers, pastors in London. And Charles Spurgeon, uh, Spurgeon was just a very fiery guy. And, and uh, so he had a church and he had an orphanage. And so, so Spurgeon and Joseph Parker, they got in a big dialogue. They got in a big argument one day, just, just a fiery argument. And so Spurgeon went to his church on Sunday and just in front of his pulpit just ripped Joseph Parker up. Well, Joseph Parker went to his church and he said, Church, hey, I know y'all have heard the newspapers and I know you've been hearing that Charles Spurgeon and I were having problems and all this. But he's like, I want you to know that I love him unconditionally and his orphanage is having problems. He's not having enough money coming in. So we, starting with me, we're going to take up the biggest offering we've ever taken up for his orphanage. And they passed the baskets and and they, they, they said that they had to empty them three times. And so Joseph Parker went to see Spurgeon on Monday and said, listen, you know, I know we've had a rift, but I just want you to know this doesn't change my love for you. Here is the offering my church took up for the orphanage. And, and Spurgeon shook his head and he said, he said, Mr. Parker, you have done something that I did not expect and actually makes me feel very poor about myself. You have practiced grace on me. See, grace is giving something to somebody that they don't earn or deserve. It's free. It's free. And again, Christianity is, is, is built upon grace, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It says, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And, you know, the Bible is a book about God extending grace to us, to humanity, uh, and, and so that we can experience his un- unconditional love and forgiveness. And, you know, grace is, is, is given to us out of pure love. Again, it's never deserved, earned, or worked for. You know, many of the world religions today, they operate under the assumption that you can work your way to heaven. 
that you can actually be good enough to earn God's favor. And, and the, the idea is you have to do more good uh, than, than you do bad. You know, that's, that's not what the Bible teaches. You know, the Bible teaches that if you do one wrong thing, if you have sin in your life, the only way you can get to heaven is you have to receive grace from God. You have to receive Jesus, and he extends grace and forgives your sins. And so th- this, is, this is what, it, what, 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 what uh, Christianity is built upon. And, and it goes all the way back to the story of creation when, when, when God created the world in a perfect, harmonious state. God created, of course, Adam and Eve, and he put them in a perfect environment. And for the only time in human history, while it lasted before the sin, there was perfect harmony between God and man, between, you know, Adam and Eve, and between nature. And, uh, but everything was perfect. There was harmony. Uh, and even though God cho- Adam and Eve chose to live outside of God's plan for their lives, and in so doing, sin entered the world, and breaking the harmonious relationship between God and, and humans and, and nature. But God, the Bible says that God loved us so much that he was so unconditionally committed to us that he took matters into his own hand, sent Jesus Christ into the world. And look at these scriptures in Romans about grace. Romans 5, 17, it says, For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Romans 3, 24, 3-24, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So our families are transformed when they're built on covenant, unconditional, the unconditional love of God, and when we extend grace to others. And I just want you to think about this this morning because I'm sure as many of you are sitting here today, there are people in your lives that you haven't extended grace to. And we are supposed to be like God. We're supposed to be a representative of God here on the earth. And and God extends grace to all of us. And it's not based on whether we ask for it, whether we deserve it, whether we what what our heart condition. He just extends grace to us. And I just I just want to say. If you begin to extend grace to people, I mean just the grace of God, and you have to pray to do this. God, I just need you to give, give me the ability to extend grace. When you do that, you will never have a broken relationship. You will be amazed at how, how, how much better your relationships uh, go and are healthy because you're extending grace to people. When you extend grace to people, it draws them uh, to you. Let me tell you a little family story here. So we, we you know, our family was, get, get, was getting together, and of course there's a mother and father, my brother Tim and his wife Elizabeth, my sister Teresa, and then her husband Bill, and then all of, all of our kids. And so we had a family, we were having a family discussion one time and about where we wanted to spend the next Christmas or Thanksgiving. I can't, it's been a few years ago. And I'm just going to let you in a little secret. My sister has a strong personality. Very, very strong. But the other thing, too, is she is the most hospitable person I've ever met. 
I could drive into Austin and I could say, hey, Teresa, I'm coming. I have six people with me. Can we spend the night at your house? And, of course, she would say yes. And when we got there, she would have stuff laid out for everyone. She'd have food orders, all kind of things. So, you know, anyway, so what happens in our family is people just usually go along with what she wants because of that strong personality. Well, one day I'm like, you know, we're fam. I've been doing what she wants for my whole life. And so, so I was like, you know, I don't think that's a good idea. I think we ought to do this. And, and it, the whole room got quiet. And would you believe it? My sister did not talk to me for six months. For six months. We would go to a family meeting, and she'd go around to everyone, talk to everyone, hug everyone, and she'd walk right by me. And, uh, I mean, I wasn't mad at her, but, it, 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 you know, it, on the trip to, to see our family, you know, the kids would say, hey, is Aunt Teresa going to talk to you today? I said, I don't think so. I, I don't think so because of that strong personality, right? And so one day my dad called me. I said, hey, Dad, what's going on? He's like, listen, you have to make things right with Teresa. I said, well, I didn't do anything wrong. I would love to, Dad. The problem isn't with me. It's with her. And he, he used the pastor card on me. Son, you're a pastor. And so anyway, I listened to him. I said, okay, Dad, let me think about it. You know, I thought about this. Really, it has nothing to do with being a pastor. It has something to do with being a, a mature Christian adult. And so I, I called her, and everything was, 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 was back on track. And, and I, don't say that, I don't say that to make light of my sister or, or of me, but all of us have situations in our lives with coworkers, with family members, and the problem is not the other person. The problem is that we choose not to extend grace to others. And when you extend grace to people, I tell you what, when you start extending grace to people, you will lead so many people to the Lord. You'll be praying for so many people. I have people that I know all around town that are living alternative lifestyles, whatever, and every time I see them, they tell me to pray for them, ask me to talk. They know I'm a pastor, but what's the difference? I haven't condemned them for how they're living because they're living that way because they don't have Jesus in their life. If we can extend the love of Jesus to people, and isn't it funny how sometimes we extend grace to people we hardly know, but we don't extend it to the people who we love the most? Come on, church, come on. Covenant love unconditional love, and grace. Your families are going to start turning around. The third, the third element is, is empowerment. Empowerment. I'm going to go fast on this. But the biblical view on empowerment is this. In the Bible, God's plan was to empower all of his people. He did not, anyone, he did not want any new Christians or any of his people to stay as infant Christians, to stay as infantile Christians. Uh, no, he did not. God wants all of his children to be empowered to do great things. The Bible says that God has a tremendous plan for us, so how can we accomplish great things for God if we're not empowered? We have to be empowered to do great things. And God's view is he wanted to empower us. So think about this. Even if you're here this morning, no matter what your financial situation, no matter what your educational level, uh, no matter where you live, no matter what your ethnicity is, uh, God's plan is to empower you. And if you're not living an empowered life, I'm telling you, you need to reread the Bible and come to grips that God doesn't want other people to be great and powerful. He wants every one of us to be empowered to do exactly what he has called us to do. He didn't want us to sit back and be timid and 
and think bad about ourselves. The Spirit of God comes into our lives to empower us to do great things. Uh, proof in the pudding is this. Look at the disciples that Jesus chose. He did not, he did not choose people who had gone through seminary. He chose fishermen. He chose a zealot. He chose tax collectors. I mean, he chose people who were not special, but he empowered them, and they did incredible things. And, and so that, that's what Christ wants for us. This principle runs all throughout the Bible. And I'm, for the sake of time, I'm just going to skip over it. But Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 28, it talks about God making man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And he goes on, when you get down to verse 28, it says this. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the seas and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So basically the story is this, that God did not just make Adam and Eve in a perfect environment to sit there. Their job, they were empowered to manage his creation. They were empowered to have dominion over his creation. They were empowered to be in charge of the garden. He gave them a job to do. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. How can you have a hope and a future if you're not empowered? How can you have a hope and a future if you're always at the bottom? We, we, we talked about last week, Deuteronomy 28, that God wants you to be the head and not the tail. He wants you to be at the top and not at the bottom. All the, bless, the blessings of God are that he has enabled us to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do great things. So God's definition of empowerment, it really it speaks to us uh, growing and becoming spiritually mature so that we can understand the power that we have available to us and what God wants us to do with that. Now, let me move forward to, our, to the question about family today. The question that has to be answered is this. Why do most Christians not live empowered lives? Why do most Christians, most parents, raise kids who are not empowered? Uh, why do most of our relationships operate without an understanding of empowerment? So here, here's the truth. The goal in every relationship we're in is that we empower other people. When you go to work, you're, you're supposed to bring an empowerment element. You're supposed to empower your, employ, your employer and help them out. When you raise kids, you're not supposed to raise weak, dependent children upon you. See, some parents raise dependent children because it makes them feel good for their kids to always call on them. Let me tell you an upgrade. It's when you raise empowered kids, you still have a great relationship with you. It's just that they, they don't need your money and they don't need every, you know, like you raise them to be empowered and you raise them to be dependent upon God. See, if you're married here this morning, the goal of every husband and the goal of every wife is to empower your mate. You're supposed to make them better. You're supposed to empower them. You're supposed to help them get to places that they couldn't get without you in their life because God gave you to him, to her, to empower them. I want you to think about something. In every relationship that you have ever been in, they have operated out of one of three things. You've empowered them. It's an empowering relationship. It's a controlling relationship. 
or it's an enabling relationship. Every relationship you're in, it's on one of those three bases. It's a mutually empowering relationship or one way you're empowering them. The relationship is all about control or it's all about enablement. Let me tell you a story from 1 Samuel chapter 2. And I realized that uh, actually about five or seven years ago, I did a whole series on this. And I, I, I took one day on each one. And, uh, but I'm giving you an overview today, uh, so hopefully you can uh, grow and use this on your own. And in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 1, verse 2, in 1 Samuel, there's a story about a high priest named Eli. And the high priest Eli had two sons, uh, and the, 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 the literal translation says they were hell raisers. They were sons of the devil. And even though Eli was the high priest in charge of the temple, his son Hophni and Phinehas they were delinquent God-haters. I mean, they abused the offerings, the, the, the offerings that God lined out. He, uh, they, they, would, they would keep some part and give God the leftovers. They, there, there was a group of, of, of females that actually helped in the temple that were all virgins, and they slept with the female. I mean, just totally abused uh, the Levitical priesthood and... and uh, so we're going to talk about that. So Eli knew everything that his kids did, everything his boys did, and he did nothing about it. He enabled them. He enabled them to be sinners. He enabled them to be God-haters. He never brought discipline in their lives, never tried to correct his sons. And God told him, because you knew the sin that your sons were committing in my house, and you refused to restrain them, the priesthood will be ripped from your family. Wow, that's, that's, a, big, that's a big story. Now, on, on another hand, Eli had his two sons, but he also had another son, a third son. You remember the boy Samuel, who his mother brought and gave to be raised in the temple? And if you read the story, although Eli enabled his two boys, he empowered Samuel. And Samuel became one of the greatest spiritual leaders, perhaps the greatest spiritual leader in the nation of Israel because Eli saw everything he had done wrong with his boys and he corrected everything and he empowered Samuel to be a mighty man of God. So in all of your relationships, you can try to enable people, but it will only only hurt you and them. You can try to control people, which is also a dysfunctional way to have relationships, or you can empower people. That every time you're in a relationship, you're empowering them to grow, you're challenging them, you're helping them, you're supporting them, you're loving them, and empowerment, you know, uh, think about the Bible. God did not try to enable us. He did not try to control us. He gave us a choice. If you will do these things, if you will obey me to do these things, I am going to empower you and bless your lives. So, that's a choice we have. So our relationships in our family, there needs to be covenant, unconditional love. There needs to be grace. Grace keeps us from becoming critical. If you're a critical person, it's because you haven't given grace. Start giving grace. That criticism will go down. And then, of course, empowerable power. But the fourth one, which is really important, is, is intimacy. Is intimacy. And, of course, human beings are unique among living, all the living creatures of our earth. In our ability to communicate to each other through uh, 
verbal spoken language, a capacity which makes it possible for humans to know each other intimately. And so the Christian faith, again, it is, it is distinct from other world religions in its teaching that God has broken into human history for the sole purpose of having an intimate relationship with us. And if you go back to the Garden of Eden, uh, again, the very when, when God it says that God would talk to Adam and Eve, you see the intimacy that our world once had but now doesn't. Let me read this story. It says, so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place of flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of him. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now, this last line is the one that we focus the least on, and it's the most important. The verse is this, the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So there, there, there's no shame because sin has not entered into the world, and, and, and it's a perfectly intimate environment. See, here's what we don't understand. The world was once, once in, way back then, a very intimate place, and today there is very little intimacy. I mean, think about it. Even our communication today, we don't even talk anymore. We text. We chat. I, I mean, a face-to-face -face communication is just rare, and yet that's the only way you can truly know somebody. You have to see their expressions. I mean, when I'm, when I'm talking to Tracy... You know, if I if I were looking at each other, if I say something and she frowns, I'm like, okay, that didn't go well. <laughs> Don't say that again, okay? But but think about this. I'm not sure what your thoughts are when I start reading this passage, you know, and it starts making people feel a little bit uncomfortable about just naked people just walking around and being fine with it. And we've we've degraded degraded ourselves so much that what used to be normal is embarrassing. And I'm not going to lie to you. It makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable talking about naked people walking around just when I'm in front of you. You know? But, but it's, hard, it's hard to even imagine living in a world with such intimacy because we've come such a long way around. We've come such a long way from where it was really supposed to be. And, you know, I don't, I don't know about ladies in here, but ladies, let me tell you about a dream that every one of your husbands had and a dream that every young man has had. And I read about a psychologist who verified this. But it's a dreaded junior high dream when you're on the bus going to school and, and you forgot to put your clothes on, but everyone else has their clothes on. The dreaded junior high dream, you know. And uh, you just learned something about your husband, okay. And, I mean, there's nothing good about that dream. For some reason, you're in such a hurry to get on the bus that you forgot to dress, but everyone else did. You know, it's just, it's just, that dream has really caught you off guard, huh? There's shock, shock and awe going through here. But let, let me tell you a secret, ladies. Men in general have more problems with intimacy than you do. Your husband has more problems with intimacy than you do. I'll, I'll, I'll prove it right now in 30 seconds. Husbands, when your wife talk to you in the morning or in the afternoon and says, we need to talk tonight, fear comes in, in the pit of your stomach. 
Because number one, you don't know what she's going to say, and number two, you know it's going to be a long conversation. I mean, just right here, right here. Ladies, do us a favor. Just tell us, hey, I'm going to talk to you tonight about, just do that so we can prepare for the journey. But here's the problem. We, we've drifted so far from God's original design of creation. Let me tell you another, another something that you probably never thought about. You know, when, when the devil came in to deceive Eve and, and Adam and the fruit and the sin and all that, do you, know, do you know, many of you probably have never thought about this, what the devil, the devil's number one goal was he knew if they sinned, it would steal their intimacy with God. What the devil stole was the intimacy of God walking in the cool of day and talking with Adam and Eve. That, that's what was broken. Let me give you something else. You know the first thing that happened after Jesus died on the cross and he gave, you know, he his, gave up his spirit, Matthew 27, 51. The, number, the first thing that happened was, was, was that um, at that moment the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rock split. Now, what happened was, in the temple, there was a holy place. Then there was the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies, only the high priest once a year could go in there. It's where the Ark and the Covenant was. Um, it's where the glory of God was. And the average common person was not able to go there. Uh, historians tell us that the, the curtain was so thick between the Holy of Holies that, that uh, six pied-fell horses, three on each side, with the, with the, with the uh, curtain attached, could not pull it apart. And the very first thing that God did was the power of God tore that veil. And what, what was saying was, now everyone, everyone can have an intimate relationship with God. The, 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 the cloth that separated the glory of God from the common folk, it is now ripped in two. So the devil came to strip intimacy, and Jesus came to restore it. And I think it's a tremendous shame. It's a tremendous shame when we have the Spirit of God in our lives and we don't cross that barrier to have an intimate relationship with Him. And because we don't have an intimate relationship with God and allowing Him to deal with us, it also makes it very hard for us to have true intimacy in our family relationships. So those, those four things. Would you stand with me today? The band would come up. If we want to heal our families, number first thing is this, we have to bring covenant into our relationships, an unconditional love. We have to have grace, God extending grace to us. We have to extend it to others. You know, we have to begin to empower our relationships, our children, our spouses, our nieces, our nephews. And we also, we also have to, we have to start moving with intimacy. And, you know, the thing about intimacy is this. The reason we're not intimate is because we're scared to be vulnerable, we're scared to be transparent, and we're, we're scared to be held accountable. But you know what? When we do these things, what we realize is what I was scared of actually helped me. What I was scared of actually improved my relationship. Would you, would you bow your heads with me this morning? I just want to pray for you. you may, there may be a lot of you here who have great family relationships. There may be some who your relationships are in disrepair. But these four pillars from the Bible, although they're not easy to, to bring into our lives, 
if we can, if we can begin to implement these, the first thing that will happen is our relationships will dramatically improve. God, I pray today, Lord, you gave us families. You gave us husbands and wives, and you gave us children, and you gave us mothers and fathers. As a family for us, God, in families, are supposed to be a source of joy and not a source of conflict. They're supposed to add value to our lives, not take away. So God, even though, even though, Lord, the family is, is in disintegration in many parts of our country today, God, we ask in the church, God, that you begin to restore family. God, that you begin to restore relationships. God, and I pray that today that each person here we will not look to other family members, but we will look to ourselves. How can I model covenant? How can I extend grace? How can I empower them? How can I bring a, a certain amount of intimacy into, into our relationships? Would you just, just signaling to God, if, if, if you just have some re family relationships that you're struggling with, would you just raise your hands just asking God to help you? Lord, we pray right now for the restoration of marriages. We pray for the restoration of parent-child relationships. God, God, we just pray right now that your covenant and your grace and your empowerment and your intimacy would come upon us and upon our families. God, we're in desperate need of your help in our families, God. So we ask you to help us, Lord God, help us. And I pray for miracles, for testimonies of family relationships being restored, God. Lord, the devil wants to destroy our relationships, but Jesus, you came to enhance our relationships. So I just pray for that today, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Hey, if, if I could get some of the, the um, guys in here to help us stack up these chairs real quick in rows of eight, that would be very beneficial.